0: If you have your Bible with you today, please to open it to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. I had another message uh, completed on the theme of evangelism that we're stressing right now, and I heard the, all the dire forecast last night. Didn't know if we would have even a service today, depending on the electricity and the ice and so on. So I... I looked in my file and changed my mind and decided I would preach on a different subject altogether today and I'll get back to the evangelism just as quickly as we can but I think this is a very appropriate message for today now in the book of Isaiah chapter 45 literally this is one of the most remarkable chapters in all of your bible I could I, literally we could spend weeks studying this one chapter alone. You see there, it starts with verse one, "Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus." Now here's what's interesting. This fellow Cyrus was the, a king of Persia. He hadn't been born yet when this was written. In fact, he wouldn't be born for 150 years in the future. And yet, God calls his name 150 years before he's born, and there's this prophecy. Go back one verse to chapter 44, verse 28, and here's the prophecy. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now, he's going to be the king of Persia. He's not even a Jew. He's not even a believer. He's a pagan. He is my shepherd. And he will perform my pleasure. Here's the sovereignty of God at work. God is directing a man who is not even a believer in him at this point. And he will say to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. And it was Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia, who issued the decree under which Nehemiah and Esther went back and rebuilt the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. But the prophecy is 150 years prior to that. And then he even is more specific. Not only will he rebuild the city, he will rebuild the temple and say to it, thy foundation shall be laid. Now, if you read the first chapter of Ezra and the last chapter of Second Chronicles, you'll see this being played out. And then the Lord goes from that to six times in this chapter. He says, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There's no God beside me. And he keeps saying that over and over. In verse 7, it's so fascinating. I formed the light. God said, I'm the one who creates light. And he didn't say, I formed darkness. He's scientifically correct. Because darkness is the absence of light. And God says, I form the light, and I create the darkness by withdrawing the light. I control light and dark. I make peace, and I create evil. And by evil, he means they're not sin, but bad things. And I, the Lord, do all these things. And you just go down through there. Every verse is just so rich. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker, verse 9. Verse 11, I am the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask of me Of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command me. In other words, he's saying, if you will pray, you you can tell me what you need, and I will help you. I have made the earth, and I've created it. Verse 12, and uh, you go right on. Verse 14, the last phrase, God is in thee, and there is none else. And he says that over and over. There's no other God but me. He keeps talking about creating the heavens and the earth, verse 18. And so it's just a wonderful, wonderful chapter. You could take your Bible and a few helps, and you could just study every word of that, and it would be a blessing to you. I'm just giving you that, though, as some words of introduction because my text today is in verse number 22. And it says, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. He says there is no, one, no other God again. Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, anybody, anywhere on the earth. I am God, and there is none else. Let me tell you about this text and why it is such a wonderful part of our Christian heritage and is important to us today. And to do that, I must tell you the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, you hear me often refer to Spurgeon because I quote him because I read his sermons periodically. Charles Spurgeon was the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul in the minds of the people that know him. He was born in 1835 or something like that. He was raised in a godly home. His father was a Congregationalist preacher. Now, the Congregationalists were called nonconformists, or they were called independents. They were independents back then, too. Congregationalists were a Reformed uh, denomination or group, And uh, they were outside the Church of England, which was the established church. In those days, they would not allow anybody other than the Church of England to use a denominational name. That was a law of the land. There was not religious freedom in England as we know it today back in those days. And so the churches were called by various names but they could not say they were Baptist or Methodist or congregational or whatever their denomination was. So his father pastored one of those small churches in an English town. So, as you would think, he was confirmed or sprinkled as a baby and went through the catechism and all that, but uh, he never really understood that type of theology and so on. He attended Oxford University or Cambridge. I'm not sure which one. I couldn't find it in the time I had last night. One of the prestigious universities he attended for a few days, probably two or three times, and he left there. And he tells the story of his conversion, which I'm going to tell you in a moment. But shortly after his conversion, he began to serve the Lord. And within a couple of years he was the pastor of a small church after being converted at 15 years of age now listen he became the pastor of a church when he was 17 or 18 years of age which by the way was not so uncommon in those days the church was at water beach on the coast of england but he was such a powerful preacher that within two more years he was the pastor of the new park street church in london the New Park Street Church had been founded under the ministry of a famous preacher named John Gill, whose commentaries are still being sold today. Spurgeon went there, though, and the church had dwindled down to a very small attendance from its large state. Within five years of Spurgeon taking that pulpit, the church was running 10,000 people on many Sundays. It was the largest church in England. No, It was the largest Christian congregation since Pentecost, since the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon was pastoring the largest church in the world, the largest church there had ever been in the history of Christianity, and he was 21 years old when it was happening in England. The church outgrew all of its facilities, so they moved locations. They changed the name of it to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Because, again, they couldn't use the name Baptist in their name. And he pastored that church for 38 years. And he had a wide-ranging ministry. He started an orphanage and had lots of children that they took care of. They started what we would call today a rescue mission and uh, dealt with a lot of the poor and the homeless people of that time there in London. He started a college to train preachers, and had at one time almost 900 men enrolled studying for the ministry there. And so he had a wide-ranging ministry. His greatest ministry, though, other than the church, was publishing. There was a man named Baxter that was a printer in England, and he began to print uh, Spurgeon's sermons. And then he printed a book called Daily Light on the Daily Path, which we sell right back here in our little book nook back there. And you can get a copy of it. I was talking to someone about it before church. Baxter became, Spurgeon's sermons were in such demand that Baxter gave his print shop over to nothing but printing the material of Charles Spurgeon. And did that for many, many years. And Spurgeon became friends of people that we talk about a lot. D.L. Moody was a dear friend of his and preached for him. George Mueller was a friend and preached. J. Hudson Taylor, who founded the, uh, Christ, uh, the uh, China Inland Mission and had over 2,000 missionaries out under his leadership. He, he was widely supported by Spurgeon in those days. His sermons... There were two stenographers came representing the London newspapers and sat every Sunday. And uh, we don't know if they were Christians or not, but they just took down every word that he said. They were legal stenographer types of today. And they would print up those sermons. And the London newspapers carried his sermons in complete form. I mean, every word that he said Uh, on Mondays or Tuesdays of the following week. More than one of the newspapers. So you can see the profound impact and influence of this young man who was preaching the gospel in London at that time. He was elected the head of the Baptist Union, which would have been the convention of that day. But the convention became liberal, and it was called the downgrade controversy because The Scriptures themselves were downgraded. There came people who didn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, involved in the Baptist Union. Spurgeon left it famously and became what we would call today an independent Baptist church, just as you would think of our church today. Here maybe is his greatest contribution. I have this one. This is volume one called the new Park Street pulpit before he moved to the new building and then it became the Metropolitan this has 518 pages. Now, listen to this. 518 pages. It includes this, all, every sermon that he preached on Sunday morning and Sunday evening for two years. So, it has about 104 sermons in it, or something like that, or 200 sermons, I guess. And I have in my library, I bought the whole set as a young preacher. Back then, you could afford it. Today, it'd be a lot. There's 63 of these volumes, 63, 3,200 sermons, and today, Charles Spurgeon's sermons are still the best-selling sermons in the English language. So, you can see how God used this guy, this kid preacher, really, at first, and then he stayed there for 38 years. He died when he was 57, He had poor health all his life. He was about 5'7 height and weighed over 300 pounds and had gout and kidney disease, which took his life. But my, how God used him in his brief life. Listen to his testimony, and you'll see why I'm using it today. I sometimes think, he said, I might have been in darkness and despair now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, he said, the storm got so bad, I couldn't go to the congregational church I was headed to. So he said, I turned down a court, and I came to a tiny little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel that morning, I'm quoting Spurgeon now. This is his testimony in his own words. In that chapel that morning, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not show up that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. So a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. (laughs) The text was Isaiah 45, 22 that we've just read, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The man didn't even know how to pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me when he read the text. Now, let me stop and Interject that Spurgeon, even as a teenage boy, he's 15 years old here, but he had gone through a long period, he says, of melancholy, of depression almost. He said, Everything seemed black. I saw no hope. I even questioned the existence of God. I even questioned my own existence. So he was a teenager who was having a lot of doubt, depression, and fear. He especially feared that he might go to hell. He had read Baxter's call to the unconverted. The little book I quoted the other day to y'all here in a sermon, he had read Joseph Aline, the famous Puritan preacher's book on salvation. And it had stirred his heart, and he was under deep conviction for his sins, even though he's a very moral young boy. He was, not a, he was not out into deep sin, but he just saw the condition of his heart. And so he goes back now and he talks about the preacher. He didn't even pronounce his words right, but he did, that didn't matter. And he began his sermon thusly. My dear friends, he said, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking doesn't take a great deal of effort. It ain't even lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man doesn't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool in the world, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year, which was a big sum in those days, to look. Anybody can look. A child can look. And this is what the text says it says, Look. And then it says, Look unto me. I, he said in a broad Essex draw, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll not find any comfort in yourselves. And then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and I'm buried. Look unto me. I will rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. And now I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. Look to me. And when he had got about that length and managed to spin about 10 minutes, he was at the end of his tether. And he looked at me back under the gallery in the little church. And I dare say with so few presents, he knew me to be a stranger. And he then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made about my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a blow well struck. And the man continued, you will always be miserable, young man, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text, but if you obey me now, this moment you will be saved. And he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can shout, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Oh, said Spurgeon, I could have looked Until now, oh, I could have looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else the man said. I did not take much notice of it. I was possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and they were healed. And so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Now, let me repeat that. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Methinks, plank went the bell of heaven. <laughs> there and then the cloud was gone the darkness rolled away that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of those primitive Methodists of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith alone, which looks to Him oh that somebody had told me this before just trust Christ, just look and you will be saved. Spurgeon later said, I thank God. I owe my conversion to Christ, to an unknown person. Who certainly was no minister in the ordinary acceptation of the term, but who could save this much? Look to Christ and be saved. All ye ends of the earth. He continues. When the congregation sang a hallelujah before they went out, he said, I could join with them. And as he walked back home through the snowy street, he said, the words of David kept ringing through my heart. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And he said, God flooded my heart with joy and assurance. And he said, I could understand what John Bunyan meant when he declared he wanted to tell the crows on the plowed land all about his conversion. He said, I had to tell somebody. I was too full to hold. I felt I must tell somebody. Well, he said the change was immediately observed by my family. I remember standing before the fire leaning on the mantel shelf after I got home and my mother spoke to me and I heard Her say outside the door a moment later. There's a change that's come over Charles. She had not had half a dozen words with me, but she saw that I was not what I had been before. I had been dull, melancholic, sorrowful, depressed. But when I looked to Christ even the appearance of my face changed. I had a smile, a cheerful, happy, contented look at once, and she could see it. And a few words let her know that her melancholic boy had risen out of his despondency and had become bright and cheerful. And until her death, 38 years later, my mother was able to see that happy transformation sustained in her firstborn child. That night, he said, I waited for the other children to go to bed before confiding with his father what had happened. And by the middle of February, six weeks later, he was calling once a week. Calling meant he was out visiting. He picked a track of 33 homes and determined that he would go there once a week. And when he did, he would leave a track at every door. And for a long time after that, every week he visited that tract of thirty-three homes and left him a track each time. Now, let me make a few applications and observations. Well, number one, after you've heard that story, it's a good reason to not cancel church when there's a weather. Amen? Snowstorm he said was the reason I got saved. Had I gone to the church I'd been anticipating, he said, I wouldn't have heard the gospel, but the snowstorm forced me into a little church, and I went and I heard this lay preacher, this layman in the church get up without any preparation, and this man go and uh, preach the gospel from an obscure text to him at that time. Good reason to not cancel church. Who knows what God might do? It, wouldn't it not be possible that even today God had led somebody to come to church here to hear this simple message of salvation and hope and and the conversion of Charles Spurgeon and save them? Maybe some little boy gets saved here would be another great servant of the Lord. Don't ever sell the Lord short. doesn't have to be a beautiful, sunshiny day in May for God to work, does it? And I'm so glad we had church today, aren't you? Number two, I would observe the importance of preparing our children's hearts for the gospel. I've read so much about Spurgeon. I seem like almost knowing. And the thing about Spurgeon, he keeps referring to this as the way that his heart was prepared. He went through this period of melancholy and despondency and gloom because he saw himself as he was. Now, he was not a hardened sinner. He was not an alcoholic, drug addict, criminal, a a teenager that was out in all kinds of immorality as we think about somebody being really off the tracks. He was a moral, good, church-going preacher's son. And yet the Holy Spirit showed him the depravity of his heart. And one of the great themes of Spurgeon's preachings You wonder how people would react to Spurgeon today. He talked about himself as a church-going moral preacher's son. He talked about himself as if he were the gravest sinner who ever lived. You see, he had been so well prepared by his parents. And why they didn't lead him to Christ earlier, I don't know. That's, That's beside the point. Because you don't get saved anyhow until the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts. And I have a real concern that our people here, boy, I I want to carefully shape the words because most parents today are not doing very much at all about the spiritual life of their children. But those of you who are in the inner circle of the Florence Baptist Temple, you really concern me sometimes because you get in such a hurry that you push these kids to make a decision and then later on, they just renounced the whole thing. Don't ever push your child to make a decision so they can walk down the aisle and you can feel proud. You wait until the Lord does a work in that child. He'll, I'll tell you how you'll know when the Lord's doing the work. Probably that child will say something to you, I, I need to get saved. I think I need to go, or I need to go talk to the preacher, or I need to co- go talk to Mr. Kent, or mama, will you show me from the Bible? But don't be in any hurry. This man's 15, and he was absolutely immersed in the gospel up until that time. We've got to trust the Holy Spirit to work. It's, it, it, this is not a a process where we decide, okay, you're ready now. You're 12 years old. You need to make, uh uh-uh, no, no, no. Let the Holy Spirit work in the lives of your children. Be very careful, but prepare their heart. And you know how you prepare their heart? You prepare their heart by teaching them the Word. You prepare their heart by having them in church every time the doors open that you can be here. And you prepare their heart by having them come in here and hear the preaching of the Word of God. And I had heard that all of his life we 're far too much into entertaining people i 'm afraid today. The most wonderful thing that can happen is that you can come in here and sit on a pew with your children beside you and they hear the preaching of the Word of God. Now we have children 's services and we have other things, but uh, the reality is is the heart has to be prepared with knowledge of the plan of salvation and the preaching of the word, and the whole preaching of the word, not just the three points that we would use in leading people to Christ. We want salvation. We don't want a decision to give us peace as parents. I know how I long for the salvation of my children, but train your children, teach your children about the character of God, about His holiness. Teach them about His justice. You teach them about His love. I'm not worried about that. That's all people here today. But God's a holy God. He's a just God. He is a righteous God. Teach them the full spectrum of the character of God and the importance of preparing our children's hearts for the gospel. I, I just can't overestimate that. Give the Holy Spirit something to work with in the hearts of your children. Number three, This story that I've told you this morning and read to to you for the most part reminds me again of the power and the simplicity of the gospel of Christ, the simplicity of the gospel. The preacher never preached before. Spurgeon went back to look for him and never was able to find the man. In fact, (laughs) Spurgeon writes real humorously. He says at least three different people have claimed to be that preacher during my lifetime. Everybody wanted to take credit for the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. He said, I saw all three of them, and none of them looked like the man that preached that Sunday morning. So I never knew who he was, an unknown, simple, probably a laborer, as he says, a tailor or a tradesman of some sort. Poor man came to church, and the preacher didn't show up. And he said, somebody's got to get up and do something. So he got up and did his best. And Spurgeon got saved. And reminds me, it's not the messenger, it's the gospel. The gospel's everything, folks. It's the gospel. Don't ever allow Satan to devalue the simplicity and the, the power of the gospel. Spurgeon thought it was about what he was going to do. In his testimony, you heard me say, he said, I thought there were 50 things I had to do to be a Christian. And I found out from this laboring man, there's just one thing you have to do to be a Christian. You look to the Savior on the cross, his bleeding wounds where he shed his blood for your sins, and you trust him. Think of the word look. What does it look does it mean to look? We know it means to see. But look also means to depend upon, to depend upon. So so somebody's sick and they say, well, I'm looking to that pill, that new treatment to help me get well. Or somebody says, well, I'm looking to this. to," And so it means we depend upon something, something outside ourselves. We look, meaning I'm trusting in something or someone other than myself. And Spurgeon was looking to do 50 things. He had confused it with works. God showed him it was about what Christ did for him. So he was baptized about six weeks later. Immediately began to serve the Lord by going door to door, giving out tracts. And at 17, two years later, he's pastoring. And lastly, let me say a word to you about the power of the gospel. That's what... I'm training our people in on the Monday night workshop. my goal, my vision, my dream is to train an army of people who understand the gospel at a very deep level themselves so they can say it very simply to the people they talk to. And I invite you to come. You know, Spurgeon said immediately, Even my mother, within minutes of me getting home, says he's different. He's different. You see, conversion does make people different, real conversion. And people today, and particularly our teenagers, had Spurgeon been a teenager in our day, you know what our young people are taught? To conform. They want to be like everybody else. They want to be like everybody else. The greatest fear a teenager has in America today is to be singled out and to be talked about, to be identified. They want to be a part of the herd, the group. They want to conform. Conversion makes us not want to be like the people around us. It makes us want to be like Jesus. Christianity, true Christianity will make you a nonconformist no matter what age you are. It doesn't make me want to be like what I see out here. It makes me want to be like what I see up there. And the power of the gospel is the only thing that can do that. We all want to be accepted. I want to be accepted. But I found out a long time ago, early in my ministry, I just would have died to be accepted by everybody. It hurt me when people would disagree with me. I found out I can't please the world and the Savior. So I had to decide, who am I going to please? Who, am I, who would I prefer to be accepted by? The Lord Jesus and his serious Christian people? Or would I prefer to be accepted by the world and the carnal crowd doesn't think much about Him. The power of the gospel to change you and make you Christ-like and give you aspirations to please Him. And it happens quickly when you get saved because He puts a new nature in you. Will you stand to your feet with me, please, and bow your heads?